Uh, today is one of those days when the Fed, the Federal Reserve, um, they be meeting and talking and trying to predict the future, and they have no idea. And uh, Jerome Powell, who is the Fed chairman, will make a dramatic, well, although for him, he is the, one of the most a generic old white dudes ever. Uh, he shows no emotion because that can be taken as uh, an indication of something. Many people are hoping that they, they, they will not raise any rates, but more on that in a minute. Just to show you the, uh, the remarkable conflict between who thinks what about this and what goes on inside this complex financial international domestic machine. It is impossible to make any sense of, and so don't waste your time. The past couple of weeks, it's been uh, really flat, as they say except one day when it dove a lot and then bounced back the next two days. So today, when they meet, um, well, here's the first story. Here's the precursor to anybody's okay. um, being concerned. Headline is, this sure does not look like a recession. First of all, the word recession is overused, abused, misunderstood, and people keep using it as the death knell <laughs> kind of a word that nobody knows what it means. What it means in theory is two quarters back to back where American spending does not hit the gross domestic product. It's it's we've already been there last year. So how you define this is in the eye of the financial beholder and I have no idea what any of them are talking about. And it's also when you watch these these networks which I have been sucked into it's, I don't know how to even, there's, if all these people are so smart, why can't they agree on anything? <laughs> right. I, I, it, I don't understand. I mean, they're, they're talking about stuff. And I, I saw this morning where the people that I work with made a trade with the monies that I have and bought a bunch of um, uh, treasury bonds. So I looked it up and I still have no idea what they are. Uh, so I hate that. <laughs> I don't know what it means. So here's the story under this does not look like a recession. In advance today of a another quarter point interest rate and perhaps an indication that they're done with it and we'll start to cut this back. High interest rates mean less less lending. People can't afford it. It means less home buying, less car buying. All of these components work somehow within this gigantic financial wheel. Here are the words written under that headline. Neither corporate earnings nor the newest GDP numbers imply we are careening toward an economic contraction. Whatever okay. that means, I don't okay. know. I got no idea. Last year, as the Fed tightened rates at the most rapid clip since the early 80s and stocks fell 20%, executives and the press got obsessed with the possibility of a downturn downturn in what uh, to paraphrase the economist robert solo the downturn has been everywhere except in the economic numbers i've just read three sentences there that are entirely contradictory and don't mean shit solid corporate profits low unemployment and yesterday's gdp data suggest the economy is more or less fine it slowed down, yes, which is important to lower inflation. But there is scant evidence the economy is wobbling 
on the cliff's edge. Consumers seem hale and hearty. Translation, they be spending money. Yeah. Disposable income was up 8% during the quarter, the best gain in a decade. That helped drive consumer spending by 3.7%, the fastest since 2021, which occurred during the government uh, handing out uh, ass loads Mm -hmm. of money during that time. In the corporate world, nearly uh, um, 80% of companies that have released their quarter one results have given better than expected numbers. So analysts began to raise their earnings forecast for the coming year. The bottom line, for sure there are weak spots like the housing market, and things could change if the actual impact of the last year of rate hikes has not kicked in yet. But in an economy that is 70% consumption, goods, services, houses, I guess houses are more of a separate block, uh, kind of a bigger uh, impactful thing in the overall picture. The current strength of the consumer is tough to square with the idea of a looming downturn. So that story uh, would imply that this is not as bad as everybody keeps saying that it is. And the the rate increase... Okay, so here's, here's, here's part two. Yeah. Here's what's likely coming from the Fed on Wednesday. Another rate hike, maybe a hint at an upcoming pause as well, which brings in Mr. Powell, uh, Jerome Powell, Jay Powell, those of us that that know him yeah. call him Jay. <laughs> Rat bro. Uh, the Fed Reserve is on track to raise their benchmark interest rate for the 10th time on Wednesday, the newest step towards curbing inflation with, with, with the fastest pace of hikes in four decades. Economists and Wall Street types will be more interested in what the Fed and Jay Powell signal, signal in a statement and at, at a news conference about a bigger question, what comes next? So there are those out there that believe he, they will not raise interest rates. There are those that believe it will happen one more time, 0.25%. Uh, the most important thing is what he hints at about the future, which isn't here yet. <laughs> so uh, this this guessing game and the words that he uses and those that are around him use are pretty interesting. He wants to tell the market, don't relax, don't be complacent. How can you possibly be complacent with all the other things that are going on that we are teetering on the verge of something good? Most of these experts predict So maybe as one last gasp to make sure that inflation is under control and that prices go down and that the housing market doesn't explode, maybe he will, they will raise it a little bit and then back off. So as you're watching your money and watching your budget and watching your savings, today is the day when they will announce at some point um, what the deal is. Now, uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, uh, things were just uh, plummeting last time I checked. That probably is, is in preparation to see what happens today. So they, they kind of um, bake in, if you will, um, a, some room to move back up. It's, it's, it's just it's, it's impossible to figure out. Uh, but today is an important day. It'll be May the what? It'll be the early, the first part of May. And 
So that gives us the rest of the year to presume that this will all be bouncing back. It'll be more um, bullish and things will improve and make you more money. Who the hell knows? <laughs> I will say not. this. I don't. I, I've never seen more drive out tags on cars than I have in the past six, eight months. Every day. Cars. So yeah. many. Well, you know? yeah. I don't, have, y'all, have you noticed? Oh, yeah. I don't know. There's a definite. It's, it's uh, insane. It, it is. But, you know, I would not <laughs> depend, especially in this area of uh, Memphis, Tennessee, on all of those drive out tags being legit drive out tags in any way, well, shape, or form. Well, of course not. <laughs> I know. They're all homemade on your computer. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't spend too much time on, on any of this stuff. Um, as I sit here and look at the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 16 open tabs on my computer. <laughs> yeah. I've done my, my in-depth research this morning. Not really. Um, keeping too many tabs open is bad for your brain. Sydney, what does this mean? Hey, yes. Hello, FedEx. Calm down. <laughs> okay, what's the deal there? A new study has found that one in four people feel stressed and overwhelmed when they have too many tabs open on their computer. I mean, think about what you think about what you do. That's that's me right now, too. But I mean, people keep stuff open all day, I guess, if they're shopping. And then if something pops up and oh, I need that, too. You click on something, you go down a rabbit hole, another tab opens, it gets cluttered. And it's, it's stressful. It's just bad browsing habits, pop up windows. And, you know, somebody, you leave a tab open after reading an article, but then something else pops up and you might go to it or not or whatever, but close your stuff. The end. Well, yeah. Well, people just, I guess they think they're going to go back to it or they just are lazy, but it can, it can just, it can just stress you out. They easily forget what they were looking for. The concentration lapses when something else more interesting, you know, pops up. I mean, that's the, that to suck you in and me and everybody else. Multitasking is another issue of computer clutter when, you know, all kinds of, Somebody might be gaming, doing research, booking a restaurant at the same time on the different tasks. The computer is set up to help you. Mu- That's the point, I isn't know. it? To multitask. That is the point. To go here, but- to go there, to cross-reference. That's why it's there. Yes. That's why you can have about 20. I think this that this story is a well, waste of words. <laughs> well, it, uh- it, 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 think about a little kid. Like you're, like if your kids had a table when they were little, and to, to like real little, when, you know, to play on or to eat on or to whatever dining a dining table a play table a desk to do homework it's like that as stuff piles up on that table leaving no room to do that's something efficiently that's kids, like your figure it out. <laughs> that's like your computer though yeah, that's not my problem and, that's your kids problem and having a whole bunch of tabs <laughs> open is does not help your browser move quickly when you want to bring true. any one of them up and Drake, you've had this problem before where things would just disappear there or or yeah it, it goes away because maybe you accidentally clicked an x because they're all crammed together like that and it's so tight mm-hmm. and then yeah. and then at some point there's music playing Oh, Which yeah. tab is it? There's <laughs> Which 17 tab is it open. I've got to yeah. check each one. That's the one that will drive you out of your mind. Yeah. Well, yeah. This, so, this, little, this little ad for AT&T starts, and it's, oh, my God. I've got it, uh, can, two screens, and one has three tabs, and one has four tabs open right now. i got two screens. i got about 20 tabs open, and the lists of y'all's different stories and a bunch of other crap I don't need open. But anyway. Yeah, I, ditto. That well, probably is, a, is it, it, it does cost it. It's also, I think, it's kind of like, you know, doing a puzzle too. 
which helps your brain function. Yeah. Uh, to kind of guess at which one you can. But then again, when I pull my cursor underneath this tab, it tells me what's there. Mm -hmm. So I know what to click on. So that story well, was a waste of paper and everyone's time. But I saw well, that I almost went there. But uh, Well, it just says try to set a maximum number of tabs for yourself so you can keep you know, that you keep open on your computer at one time. Instead of having 20, maybe tell yourself, okay, I'm just going to do 10. Because that way you can read more in the little space and, and go, oh, yeah, that's that tab. And that's okay. this tab. Okay. So uh, there you go. All right. there, there's so problem solved. Very helpful. Very <laughs> Not going to close that tab. Thanks. Let's transfer to the world of sport. I would not have ever guessed this. What do you think the most watched telecast ever is now according to updated data uh a world cup jeez am i getting attacked air raid i don't know <laughs> air jesus raid. uh not, not pickleball hard yes pickleball. pickleball is now the most watched <laughs> sport on television even though it's not on television have you ever watched <laughs> hey, anybody play pickleball not in person they no. don't use pickles that's the first disappointment <laughs> Ding. why bother the Super Bowl from earlier this year, Super Bowl LVII, was the most watched most watched U.S. based telecast of ah, all time. U.S. based. You didn't say that the first time. Well, that's why uh, I said so we live in the U.S. So f everybody else. <laughs> uh, now, if you remember, and I don't, what a close game that was. It drew 115 million people across all platforms. Nearly two, uh, two million times more than more than any Nielsen previous announcement. That was the game where the Chiefs won thirty-eight thirty-five. Yeah, and it surpassed the one in twenty fifteen, but uh, that's now the most watched television show ever. Okay, that was big news. Now uh, this is probably <laughs> stupid, but this is how people like ESPN try and stay relevant. I, I don't understand how here in May. They have already issued their top 25 college football teams. It's ridiculous. They haven't, they've had their spring football uh, season and all that stuff. And as usual, the same suspects show up. And they've issued their top 25 after the experts, again the experts, have watched spring practices across the country. The top, the, there's, there's, there's one reason why I uh, pull this up because it kind of harkens back to uh, the Tiger football program. Uh, number one is last year's champion, Georgia. Okay. Uh, number two is Michigan, who came back with a, a great, powerful uh, team last year and played well. Number three is Alabama, who will have a new quarterback. And Bama's going to always be top five, regardless of who they're playing. If they insert a goat into the line, up, they'll still be ranked top yeah. five. And they yeah. may. Nick Saban is unpredictable. Number four is Penn State. They're always up there. Okay, good. Number five is Florida State, who is coached by Mike Norvell, who was a coach of the Tigers. That's right. And he's been down there. Is this his fourth year, maybe? It takes maybe. time for a coach to build his empire. And, and he has been tapped here along with with the uh, Seminoles to be a really good team this year. And they play along in the same conference with uh, Clemson and all that stuff. 
Ohio State, Notre Dame, Clemson, Texas, and USC are the top 10. So if you care, that's how the experts see this going. And it means nothing at all. They haven't <laughs> played any games last time I checked. Coming up this Saturday, the first one in May, is the Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I wonder if other horse fans, kind of like me, have um, had their enthusiasm dampened over the past years because of a lot of missteps and uh, just some bad moves in the industry and horses dying at various tracks and just 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 overall um, some sketchiness that uh, I don't I'm not, I'm not quite sure what it is but it has made the build up to this a little less fun I haven't looked and watched any race at all and the tracks open for their winter season in January like Oaklawn and Hot Springs then they're open up on the West Coast, down in Florida, and the tracks are running graces. And that's where these horses make their um, wins and or losses and get the points to qualify for the Kentucky Derby. This year, I think more than ever in a long time, Well, but then again, every year it's wide open, which may be... That to me should attract more interest. I find it a lot more fun that way. Uh, than having odds on favorites. Now, there are 20 horses. They've already done the post positions. And if you're taking notes at home, here are the favorites. Tappet Trice, uh, <laughs> the offspring of Tappet and Tappet Twice. I, I, I don't know. Uh, Todd Pletcher is the trainer. Luis Saez, he's at 5-1. to one. He's in, in the five hole. And the five is what you should always bet because it's right there in the middle, except this time when there are 20 horses. So he's one of the favorites. One of the ones I'm going to watch um, is M-A-G-E. Is it Mage? Mage? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> 15 to 1 right now. These odds will all change. Reincarnate. John Velasquez, one of the best jockeys in the sport. And the jockeys are the quarterbacks of this, this sport. They know the track and the horses, and they navigate them through messes and sometimes come out on top. So uh, at 8-1 to one is Angel of Empire. I may bet that just for the horse's name. Yeah, that's which cool. Which many people do, and they win. Angel of Empire. Forte is the favorite at 3-1. to one. Brad Ortiz Jr. is, no, I mean, uh, Irad, whatever his name is, Irad. Uh, is the jockey on this one, trained also by Todd Pletcher, who is famous for training horses. Uh, either way, they got 23 right now. So by the time this rolls around, at about 5.57 our time on Saturday, they will likely scratch uh, two or three, and there will be 20 or so in the mix. This is one of those things, though, where there are so many horses that have a chance with really big odds, as we've said for years, if you bet this and you know play it down at Gold Strike or over and in um, West Memphis, a chance to make some money. So the the uh, Derby is here. Boy, it's it's all going by so fast. So that's coming up this weekend 
uh, NBC's coverage begins at noon. Then all this is happening along with the Bill Street Music Fest all weekend long. We have tickets for that, uh, by the way, to give to you at some point today. So there's your quick look at the world of sport from the NFL. You know, I also found this, which defies what we told you yesterday about network TV. Kind uh-huh. of. Oh. A little bit. But they have a graph here, which to, if this is not a heavy contradiction to what I said yesterday about how network TV is pretty much obsolete. I did mention that the one thing that keeps it alive is sports. Right. Yeah. Now, um, there's a list here of how Americans watch television. And this goes from 2013 to 2022. In 2013, uh, about six in 10 of us watched um, cable TV. Now, I don't know. This is kind of a, a confusing little little uh, graph here. But cable and streaming are different things, right? Oh, yeah, cable absolutely. Cable TV yeah. is your basic package from Xfinity or from YouTube or whomever. So the cable watching has gone way down. Because people have opted to pay for Netflix, HBO Max, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Apple Plus, and so on. So cable TV has dropped from 61% to 35% in the past 11 years. Over-the-air network TV, and this headline makes it seem like it's a big deal, is not. It's gone from 10% to 15%. And here is the reason why. Um, Back in the 70s, the Braves had their own network, uh, kind of, which was TBS in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. The Cubs were on on in Chicago, on uh, on, um, WGN. Every game was on TV. The Yankees have their own network out of New York. And so the trend in network TV is... And the monies that are charged for these people to air sports on ESPN. ESPN has their own ESPN1, ESPN2, ESPNU, and ESPN News. Then they have the SEC Network, which I'm guessing has not lived up to its potential because maybe they use two of those uh, networks per weekend. And then you've got... Uh, there's a Pac-10 network. There's a Big Ten network. So in lieu of paying um, all of these teams and or leagues for the rights to broadcast, and ESPN is in the midst of a massive firing of hundreds of people because they're going to be paying the NBA a billion four or something like that to keep the rights to broadcast them. So all of this gets convoluted, and the trend is forcing sports teams and leagues to consider moving their rights to over-the-air broadcast networks from cable, which would further kill cable TV. Now, cable TV, I suppose you can sum it up by looking at the, the, the basic package from Xfinity. With all the networks locally, TNT and TBS and AMC and Cooking Network and all that other crap that is gathered there together. And the biggest example so far 
is in Phoenix, where the Suns of the NBA and the uh, Mercury, I guess they're soccer or hockey, I have no idea. They have a new deal that puts all of their live games on over-the-air broadcast networks, leaving no games left to air on cable. So this may be the new thing to go independent in your own market and not go to cable TV, because Sid has learned, trying to watch the Cardinals at her house, that they aren't on Xfinity because she has YouTube TV, but yeah. they're on what used to be Fox in various regions. Now it's uh, Valley Sports. So yeah. the whole thing is a confusing mess. Yeah. To simplify it, they're trying to maybe just keep it on their hometown network. Now, Channel 5 locally used to run all the Titans games. Maybe they still do. I don't know. Uh, but there's so much sports and there are, there's so much money to be made. So how long will Bob Iger, who runs Disney, ABC, ESPN, allow them to write these giant checks to get a couple of seasons of the NBA? The NFL is going to always be on ABC, NBC, CBS in some form, and ESPN, and last year Amazon Prime had the games on uh, Thursday evening. Oh, so that's right, yeah. A lot of money is moving around here, and people are trying to find... I guess uh, the least expensive way to do it in their own markets and not be tossed in the mix with, you know, 30 other teams in a league. So that one, this is the, the entire media landscape is just changing every day and it will keep changing in front of your eyes and it's, it's impossible. There's too much. Yeah, because it, it, it sucks because our d problem was we missed some Grizzlies games and Cardinals games because Valley yeah, Sports, and, yeah. I guess South, doesn't play nice or whatever or something or can't come up with some kind of deal with YouTube TV. So I couldn't, we couldn't watch any of those, which stinks. That, that is the problem in a nutshell, right there. Mm -hmm. Is that they? Is that they? It's 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 also so you know it's a narrow window. I mean. How can I live uh, down here in uh, South Haven and you live up in Arlington and you have a different network than I do or a different package than I do, but I can watch all these games and, and you can't because YouTube didn't subscribe or play the game to pay for the rights to watch Something that like on that. YouTube. Yeah. yeah. That's it's, why it's so yeah. absurdly confusing. So who knows? There's too much sports. Um, I'm wondering about how the USFL is going around here. They had their opening game, had a pretty good crowd. We heard from from, from our friend um, uh, Bill Jones, who was there. Lawyer Bill was there. Ten buck yeah. tickets, a, a, a pretty good house. They have a home game this weekend. I wonder how long the interest level will maintain itself for that. But anyway, and on the Lawyer Bill note, he's here tomorrow. So text questions for Bill, 878-9420 or anything for us that you would like to, 878-9420. Let us, let's travel over to, let's, let me see if all my tabs that are open. <laughs> which ones are <laughs> nice too. Okay, here's just one more to continue the talk of yesterday that accentuates the realities of the fears around AI, chat GPT, and all of that. This is um, this just gets stranger and more daunting all the time. 
Headline from Axios, one big thing, looming AI catastrophe. That sounds positive, hey? Uh, We talked about this yesterday. The godfather of AI quit Google. He's the dude that in 2011-2012, he and his colleagues began to roll this stuff out. This this is a man-made, human-induced project. And he quit his gig at Google and joined a chorus of experts warning that the rush to deploy AI could lead to disaster. It hit me last night somewhere in my sleep. Mm -hmm. The two words, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. It means it's (laughs) fake. Or does it? Well, in this case, it just means it's not biological. It's not a Is it like alternative facts? No. <laughs> when, when when some of the smartest people, this story goes on, building technology warn it could turn on humans and shred our institutions, it's worth listening. I think that probably is a smart comment. Mr. Jeffrey Hinton is of whom we speak, a top machine. Um, he's, a, he's the guy that, that just began this whole process. And some of the comments he made yesterday are in today's uh, his uh, piece here. Mm-hmm. So, so the service Axio ask AI experts, developers, researchers, and all that to sketch their most uh, plausible disaster fears. Love the disaster fears. Number one, uh, cyber attacks explode. The right prompts can now generate working malicious code meaning more, bigger, and increasingly diverse cyber attacks. That is the biggest threat of terror in the world, are cyber attacks. It's not bombs, it's not any of that, it's cyber attacks that can shut down the entire world. Scams proliferate. Forget clumsy emails, the new AI phishing and fraud schemes will take the form of real-sounding pleas for help in the faked voices of your friends, relatives, harvested from their social media. Does that make anybody go, I better get off this damn Facebook now? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Disinformation detonates. Propaganda and partisan assault will be optimized by algorithms, it already has been, and given mass distribution by tech giants. That's been underway for a long time. Surveillance increases. That means your lack of privacy. There are so many uh, cameras everywhere. This says that there are 70 million CCTV cameras already enabling authorities to match people to footage. God. The born movies come to life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, AI can supercharge this kind of uh, ongoing tracking for both corporations and governments. That's good. Enabling behavior prediction on a mass scale, but with personalized precision. This doesn't sound very good, does it? Doesn't sound like a great thing. And then uh, part two, IBM halts hiring for the roles that AI could kill. IBM CEO Arvind Krishna told Bloomberg News that the company will pause hiring for roles that might be replaced easily with AI. 
possibly 8,000 jobs over the next five years. Maybe that's your most, you know, tangible problem right there, or yeah. one of them. Yeah, because you know, for how many you know, years and years, decades maybe, we've been told, you know, if you want a future, go into coding, computer coding. That's what you that's need right. to do. Yeah. We're always going to need computers. We're always going to need coders. Turns out AI can code really, really well if the yeah. prompts of what it's told its goals are, are, are made clear. And that should frighten a whole lot of people who are specializing in programming. Mm -hmm. I would think so. I, it's, um, but when you sit back and don't take any of this seriously, I wonder what it'll take to get people's attention on this. We already have so many things that invade our privacy. Um, and then you toss in the idea of these cyber attacks which are already underway and have been for a long time. And where does this go? And how fast does it happen? Apparently pretty fast, depending upon uh, how you want to say that this all began in the news. I, I still hearken back to last fall when we first began to talk about ChatGPT yeah. mm -hmm. and, and, and how far that has evolved, which is really far. And it's, uh, it's getting a bit out of control now on anyway the, on the flip yeah. side of what what all you just said bear in mind that there are people because we've said this you know time and again most people are good people and not bad actors or fringe lunatics i believe there that, are yeah. plenty of them who are going to be utilizing these ai tools to counter all of those scenarios that you just talked about. Mm -hmm. There was a story we had Hopefully. last week about uh, personalized spam, and that's what you just touched on too. That, but there's also people working on countermeasures using AI against oh, yeah. those very things. Now, to um, underline your point, uh, the first couple of months of of this year, <clears throat> my my email inbox was littered with nonsense every day. I mean, all kind of things uh, from, you know, porn to, it was okay. just endless, <laughs> endless stuff. Not not just porn, it was just all kind of things they wanted to sell me. It just, you know, and suddenly it stopped and it has not returned. So from what you just said, it would appear that people on the other side, all the good guys, somehow we're trying to uh, combat this and did at least temporarily my spam calls have slowed down considerably is that just temporary too it probably it'll probably go mm -hmm. in in waves like that because yeah. your internet provider your mail provider for email in, and your phone company want you to be happy with them and if you keep getting spam and interruptions like that you're more likely to dump them for somebody else and, yeah, maybe, and yeah. so they have a vested interest in trying to keep you happy and keep the spam down. So, well, that's we can hope, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and, so and I'll add. And, and I'll add. Bob texted yesterday because we were talking about AI yesterday too, and he sent part of an article from the Washington Post. Now it was written in January, but she's she's writing a series of essays this year on democracy and how to preserve it. And, you know, talks about generative artificial intelligence could break our democracy for good. 
A healthy democracy could govern this new technology and put it to good use in countless ways. It would also develop defenses against those who put it to adversarial use, look ahead to probable economic transformation, and begin to lay out plans to navigate what will be a rapid and startling set of transitions. But is the democracy ready to address these governance challenges? She says, you know, she, she suggests, slow down. Why are we giving these few engineers at a small number of labs, you know, to set the direction for all humanity? Well, we need a breather and how to govern All you stuff. have to do is go back to the election of 2020 when the, the uh, Russians were accused and accurately of interfering with both parties and both candidates. That's been verified. Mm-hmm. So it's already underway. And how many more things can people in and out of the country influence? I would say a great deal. Um, I mean, somebody said to me somewhere the, the other day, um, what if Trump is some kind of a bot that they, <laughs> oh my God. That, that AI just created to cause havoc and to keep your eyes and ears always moving and always, cause it seems like he's some kind of machine that went awry as are many politicians. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he, he just went wrong. And he's short-circuiting. Or, or maybe they all are. Maybe they're all creations of, of AI and they're not real people, which would really add a different level of confusion and fear to all of that. But we don't need any more of that. It's already there. All the fear and confusion and stupidity. Who knows? Screw this. Uh, I see Steven Spielberg, George Michael... Ringo Starr and other entertainment things in Wes's list of stories. Why not we go there? I think that's a fine place to go. I'll start uh, in general, well, at the beginning and go in general order. Steven Spielberg, he came out with an interview to as part of the 20th anniversary, uh, no, this is the, I guess, 40th anniversary of the release of E.T., and says he regrets editing the guns outs for the 20th anniversary re-release of it. Where were the guns? The, there was a scene where the kids... Near, it was near the end of the movie where the kids are on the bicycles. Oh, they've yeah. got a, the sick E.T. in the basket, and he starts making them float up in the air because they're trying to get him back to the spaceship launch area or landing area and get him home. And the police have blocked part of the street, and in the original release in the film, they all had guns. And yeah. 20 years ago, Stephen thought that was probably a bad look and replaced them digitally with radios. And oh. the story says uh. it made sense on paper, since it's weird to have guns, uh, cops waving their guns at a kid and his alien friend. But uh, it always <laughs> it says felt like a weird move for Spielberg. It seemed like something more like what George Lucas would do. So yeah, I, I guess to have shot E.T. would be a bad look for the kids. Yeah, or shot right one of the, the kids, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. He's, but now uh, Stephen's looking back on that, saying it was a mistake. He never should have done that. He says, E.T. is a product of its era, and no film should be revised based on the lenses we now are either voluntarily or being forced to peer through. So you can't judge things of the past from the perspective of the future, is what he's saying. Oh, he's but a, you can. Uh, people does. always <laughs> do. Right. Uh, well, as an artist, though, that's, that's an accurate observation i think yeah and he concludes with all of our movies are kind of a signpost of where we were when we made them what the world was like and what the world was receiving when we got those stories out there the That's same it. way with art mm -hmm. in every form be it music be right. it books be it you mm -hmm. know painting 
They're a product of their time. And to judge them in this time is incorrect. Hence, all this book banning bullshit that just <laughs> yeah. won't go away. Well, some, uh, so much of that book banning is for newer books. What's weird is the revised books where like the estates of Ian Fleming is revising the James Bond novels. Which and, is complete and total horseshit. Well, but I, you, but you can see their point the, uh, because they want to keep selling them. And the originals don't uh, probably sit as well with contemporary audiences, which means they're unlikely to buy them. And yeah, maybe so. They're yeah. going to lose the money that people would have otherwise spent. Money, money, money. Right, exactly. But and, that was the 60s, and yes. that is a reflection of the time. Exactly. And now these guys right. can write, David Baldacci can write a similar kind of you know spy thriller, but it's much more complex. And fits the molds of today, Here where is. Ian Fleming and James Bond introduced, you know, little gadgets and weapons and cars and things that were um, spy-proof or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, but to adapt them and to change the story, I don't know how much the changes are going to make an impact on the direction of the story and well, its intent probably not so much it's more of a case of you know, not having james bond say you know things that are considered racist these days that weren't necessarily yeah. so so considered back in the late 50s early 60s when he was producing these novels and don't call them commies anymore they're just nice russian people <laughs> <laughs> so that's i understand from a marketing and you know continuing to get new sales perspective why they're doing it because otherwise they're the books are just historical artifacts more than something anyone wants to actually read for fun okay just for grins sure we should look i wonder how many books ian fleming uh and the bond series sell every year as opposed to david baldacci in his sales every year who's buying books out of the 60s you now that's a really good question mm -hmm. and i think that's part of the reason that motivated the Fleming estate to make these changes is so that people more will relevant. continue to buy. Yeah. Yes, more. You got it. You nailed it right there. Okay. And I'm going to go buy them all right now. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> they're probably all <laughs> available really. for a quick, easy download to your you know, digital reading device. So if you were to buy all the Bond books, is the character that is playing Bond the actor reflected in that book? Hmm. I mean, can I see Sean Connery on the page or whatever his name was, Roger Moore, or... You'll see him in your imagination. Yeah, he's the same dude in every book. On the screen, it's something different. Yes. But I I digress. Uh, all right, uh, go ahead. What uh, else? Okay. Uh, you mentioned George Michael. He is the one who won the fan vote for the 2023 20, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As he should have. What a fantastic Ooh. artist he was. Yep. Maybe he wasn't your thing. Maybe he was too gay or too poppy. That dude made some incredible records, and he was a fantastic talent. He had a lot of personal problems, and uh, but if you go back and look at some of his music and his, just his voice was remarkable. And to you know chastise him for being what he was as a person isn't the point; it's the art, and the guy's voice and his songwriting uh, were just magnificent. He, I'm, I'm now the people's vote. Doesn't really mean anything, right? No, not a thing. It uh, the highest vote getters are going to be listed together on a single fan ballot that gets tallied with the ballots from the official voting members, uh, but it counts all of these 
millions of votes count like one ballot that goes in yeah, amid all of the so-called experts. By, uh, it's the rock and roll elite, all the yeah. CEOs, they get their votes and nobody else. You know, yeah. Incidentally, George uh, got 1,040,000 votes and some change. Number two was Cindy Lauper with 928,000 plus. Then, she should uh, be in there too. Then Warren Zevon with 634,000. Well, he's a songwriter. He's been dead for 20 years and... People that know him, I think, are probably older and wouldn't bother to vote anyway, so Zevon gets left out. Um, but somebody that is totally inappropriate will be in there. This whole thing is such a crock, but <laughs> that, right. that's just <laughs> yeah. me. What else? And uh, you mentioned the Ringo Starr story I have. I had never heard this before. It came from uh, Rare. The t- headline being, Ringo Starr was scared of being fired by the Beatles just weeks after joining the band. I had never heard this story before. Uh, it starts Can't out really with blame him. well. Yeah. It starts out with the history of how they the Beatles were you know, together with Pete Best. They played for a couple of years. Uh, George Martin wanted uh, him out and to replace him with Ringo, or the boys did. And so Ringo, in an interview, said Brian called one Wednesday, asking to join the band, and he had to wrap up his obligations with. Rory and the Hurricanes, I think, was the band. Yeah. Before he could you know, move over to the Beatles, and then so two weeks later, they're recording "Love Me Do," and it says it's not the fastest Beatles song by far, but at the time, Ringo wasn't keeping up the pace, hmm. and Martin was oh. was not particularly impressed, and Ringo was thinking, "So I'm good enough to play ballrooms with him, but not good enough to be on the record," and. That accent was bad. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> so, but what what happened? The situation was that he was so used to playing with Rory and the Hurricanes that I guess did slower music than the Beatles were doing. So it's something he had to adjust to. But George Martin didn't have time for him to get adjusted for this single, so he brought in a studio drummer named Andy White, and he's oh. the one that uh, made it onto the record. And this hit Ringo hard. He said, before. Oh. "Yeah, he came. Yeah. He came in, and it was nervous, terrified of the studio. We came back later to do the B side, and there's another drummer sitting in my place, and oh. he was he was uh, consigned to play the maracas. And he that was happens thinking, more than anybody knows. Yeah. Is that they call in somebody else to do it? All these sidemen, the hired hands, right?" Yeah. So he, he said he was thinking that, okay, I'd been asked to join the Beatles and maybe they're going to Pete best me that that they were just <laughs> running through you know, starting this, the process of running through various drummers to see which one would be the best fit and stick around. And he was worried it wasn't going to be him. Well, that's a that's an interesting thing to look at um, because that band had not broken open just yet. Um, Love Me Do is a medium kind of a tempo song mm-hmm. and you flash back the there's a song that uh, Ringo has played in concert for all the years he's had the all-star band and it's a song that is really fast that he cut with um, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes it's called Boys and that song is really fast so it's hard to understand why he couldn't keep up or maybe he was tossed in the middle of this and Paul and John and George had it down and he was still getting his getting himself, you know, comfortable. But 
George yeah. Martin was charged with making this shit work now. Exactly. And he <laughs> and so fact, Ringo didn't have time to warm up. Right. You know? So he he actually apologized Martin did to to Ringo years after the fact because it was basically what you said. They had a timetable and yeah. you know, they Ringo had to jump in with both feet and couldn't quite cut it yet. Uh, he got better. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think that, uh, it know, worked out. Um, anybody that that uh, plays drums understands this. Maybe the observer and listener does not understand that um, Ringo Starr created some of the basic drum fundamentals that have been used since the early 60s. He was a fantastic drummer and he was a basic drummer uh, in the drum world and in the, well, just as a band entirely. A lot of times it's what you don't play and Ringo knew how to play without getting all, you know, flashy and fancy. But he was like a metronome. The guy did not miss a beat, no pun intended. He was solid. And when you go back and listen to some of the things as the band advanced, he did too. And he he just established so many foundational, uh, you know, patterns and things for drummers down the line. Drummers were pretty simple back then. And then you get on into the mid-60s, and you meet Keith Moon, and you meet John Bonham, <laughs> yeah. and then you meet Neil Peart, and you meet uh, <laughs> Danny Carey, and everything evolves. But from the beginning of time and the early 60s, if you want to say that that's where all this began, Ringo was laying down um, a simple, pretty easy beat, but it is what drove the band. You know, Charlie Watts is one more guy that was a jazz drummer. He mm -hmm. had no 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 love for this band or rock and roll, but it paid the bills. But but Watts is a guy that if you listen to them and you read about uh, his input in the Stones, he either was uh, playing uh, behind the beat or ahead of the beat by about half a beat. And I heard a song the other day on the radio. And it began at kind of a medium tempo. And toward the end, it had sped up so much. You went, wow. I've noticed that with the Stones. So, yes. So he <laughs> he just drove that band. And uh, Bill Wyman, who was the bass player back then, most, most drummers and bass players watch each other. In the case of the Stones, in the case of... Let's jump ahead a few decades. Um, Bruce Springsteen. Max Weinberg watches Bruce. And uh, Keith Moon watched Pete Townsend. Not the bass player. They watched the lead singer for their cues. And uh, Keith Moon, it has been said, and it's true, was playing along with whatever Townsend was singing and playing. And you can hear it. Um, it all of this stuff is maybe too complex, but uh, the... Bass player and the drummer is what drives the band. Everybody else needs to, you know, follow along properly. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, that jumped around some. That wasn't a hard and fast rule. Uh, but you don't see, you know, Ringo watching George. He's watching Paul or John, whoever's singing. So there's your report on Ringo stuff. <laughs> yeah, I had never heard that before, and it all it all fits. It makes sense, and you know. yeah, yeah. Uh, Ringo even says he apologized many times, but George was the right man for the job, the right man for us. He was full of ideas and open to anything we threw at him. 
And we threw all sorts of things at him, says Ringo. Yeah, yeah but you know, <laughs> but on the other hand, because you watched um, Get Back. Yeah. Ringo is the only one that does, he doesn't say anything. Uh, he doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't ask any questions. He just follows along. And sometimes he'll, he would start off a song, but he's just, he is just, you know, watching whoever is directing the tune. And he doesn't offer any ideas. He's just there. And all of that came to a head, I think, that he quit the band on the White Album, which is another story in itself. Mm -hmm. That album took way too long to do. I don't know if they were on some kind of drugs, but some of those tunes that sound pretty simple took a hundred takes to do. And he quit and said, I'm out of here. Call Pete Best. <laughs> I have his cell number in my phone. No, wait a minute. That was the mid '60s. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, he was. Um, he is underrated as far as people that look at this stuff today. He was. He 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 laid down the beat, but then many other drummers took it and ran with it and made it a lot bigger deal. Um, it's just it's all in the band. The you know the uh, White Stripes. You know, mm -hmm. she was a pretty, pretty basic drummer. She didn't do anything fancy. So it's, it's, it's all, it all depends upon who the band is and who, who's writing the songs and who wants them to do what. But yeah. And I digress. Yeah, that's fine. We have time. Okay. What else you got? Anything? <laughs> yeah. I've got one other music story that uh, I stumbled across this kind of at the last minute. The headlines, Patty Lavelle. Reveal she had no clue what Lady Marmalade, what the lyrics meant when she recorded the song. This goes no back one did. to 1974. And she was presented the song, and she said they were on their way to New Orleans. Uh, right, And we got this Lady M song, and they heard, I guess, the demo of it and said, we've got to record this first because it's a hit. She felt it. She knew it. So they got into the studio, and they laid it down, and she says, I had no clue what those lyrics meant. Voulez-vous coucher avec soi de soi? Yes. Voulez-vous coucher avec ma c'est soi? She said. Uh, that, that, is, that is compared to gitchy gitchy ya ya dida, hey, 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 which isn't in <laughs> French. No. And she says, I don't know no French. I just knew it was a hit. <laughs> So that's all that matters. Exactly. And she was right. And later she found out that uh, it meant, uh, will you sleep with me tonight? Yeah. And, Can I play with your winger? <laughs> and you know, I don't, I don't imagine that she particularly cared because I've looked over the lyrics of the, of the rest of the song and it's pretty clear what the song is all about. <laughs> so that was about, Marmalade and eating it off. Well, never mind. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi, c'est soi, c'est soi, all my sisters, yeah, come on, uh. That's right there is some poetry. Well, most of the right. world had no idea until somebody got curious and found out what it meant. And well, it was just kind of, you know, sexy. It was no big deal. Yeah, exactly. I figure anyone who spoke French probably figured it out real quick. I was going to say, if you took French, I, I, I remember Avec Moi is with me, but I took Spanish in high school, so the French went out the window from well, first grade. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, it was a gigantic hit record, and uh, so that's good. Yes. Let us transfer to, now all of this, 
hoopla is this weekend in London, right? The coronation yes. of that jug-eared hump King Charles. Um, <laughs> there is, I think that there is a general feeling. Maybe it's just Americans. I don't think so, though. When the Queen died, some of the luster and the history and the magic of the royal family receded and was not helped in the least by Prince Harry's book. Now, as I mentioned some time ago, that is not the kind of book I would usually read. But if you want to read about how horrible the inner workings of that outfit were and the endless, there were photographers and reporters, they couldn't go to the bathroom without somebody in their face. And it's a lot deeper than that and more complex. But man, it was like a some kind of a you know mafia deal. It was heavy duty, and um, the Queen and Prince Philip, her husband, did not do much to protect it or to fight against it. And so when these kids came along, well, they killed Diana first, and that didn't help their look. And then Prince Charles is painted in this book as little more than a mannequin who can talk. He is an insensitive, he, he's an uh, emotionless robot who was raised to be just that. And now he is the king of England. And uh, it, once you read this book and you see what this guy is really like, and then Prince Harry and Meghan moved to L.A. and it's a bad look for the crown. And so this ceremonial event is going to last for three days and I guess the English are into it I I don't know but this book is really something to read and um, I guess that Harry is going but he's being seated 10 rows back from the family yeah <laughs> assholes. It, 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 I mean isn't it about time perhaps to back off all this stuff and then to marry the lady, first of all, he was an adulterer uh, from the get-go. Yeah, he at least you know gave the world those two sons from from you know from their mother, all the while you know cheating with the woman who is now called the queen, not the queen consort. She's the queen, right? And he's a lion cheating piece, and so now he's the king. I got no respect for the guy at all. So you live long enough to be the king. Great. So what's your story? So I have some more about it, too. Well, there's a concert coming up in, in uh, tandem with the coronation. Katy Perry, Lionel Richie, some band called Take That are going to headline. Snooze. It's being organized and broadcast by the BBC. And Ticketmaster was, was supposed to issue 10,000 free tickets to the concert through balloting. Um, and they have made a mess of it. Of course, this is right after, you know, it's the Taylor <laughs> Swift mess. I know. Uh, so people got an email the other day saying, congrats, you've been successful in the ballot for two tickets to King Charles Coronation concert. And so this, this guy who talked to this, uh, this service, whoever wrote this story was all excited and blah, 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 only to find out the tickets weren't available. And a lot of people on Twitter went on and said the same thing. They got the message, and then it was just a total shambles of a system. 
there was immediate excitement, then immediate disappointment, because uh, this guy had already, you know, b- taken a screenshot of the email and celebration and believed his next step would be to book the train, book a train to the event and all this stuff. The application, uh, the balloting was open f- like for 18 days in February. The tickets were to be allocated based on geographical spread of the UK population, yada, yada, yada. 10,000, um, you said, right? 10, yes, 10,000. Just to and be so, near this thing, because there will be throngs I, of oh, people sure. in the streets. Yeah, I, get, I don't know don't where. Well, this is the concert, though, right? This is the concert, oh, yeah. Okay. It, yeah. This now, thing I don't lasts, know. lasts for three days, and the, did the Queen's last an hour? Done? It was, Next it was, time the Queen, bye. It was not three days worth of ceremony. No. It was not, yeah, it was not, the, yeah. Now, this concert is, the, is coming up on the 7th. So the email told the guy he was one of, of a randomly selected group of ballot winners, offered tickets in a supplementary round that would be on a first-come, first-served basis. It urged him to act quickly, but farther down it said he'd have till noon on a certain day to claim the tickets, after which they will be reallocated. However, he did act quickly, and he clicked on it right then, and he got screwed. Because they just, Ticketmaster just screwed the whole thing up. The whole he thing up. He got Taylor Swift tickets instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, he's, he said they've misled people. We know how it goes with concerts these days. It's hard to get these tickets. People. You know, people. it's, 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 it's a I, mess. One, one more cluster. Yeah. I, when, you, when you said that they, they had screwed it up, I thought, okay, so they offered 10,000 free tickets, just a $10 service fee. Right. 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 <laughs> now, uh, here's the story that, uh, that I've got. Um, this country uh, uh, has had an ongoing fascination with the royal family for a long time. And I guess for decades, hundreds of years, I have no idea. Because we used to work for them, right? Kind of, and yeah. Then we, and, then, and then we bailed. <laughs> and now we're our own people. And uh, the popularity and the hype and the attraction exploded when he married Diana. Because she was so enigmatic and so charismatic and so photogenic, and so kind, and pretty, mm-hmm. and was a good mommy, and he was such a dick that um, he was kind of pushed to the background, where he should have stayed, but how, But he was unfortunately the heir to the throne. So, some of the pomp and the circumstance, there is a romantic history uh, to this family with all the outfits and uh, what he's going to be adorned in come these events this weekend. And there are pictures of them in the story that I have from the sun out of London. The headline says gold gown for crown. Charles will become the golden king as he is adorned in glittering robes worn by his ancestors. Hope they were dry cleaned. That's some punky asshole clothes. In there. <laughs> uh, Still got William the first not on it. Uh, Previously, the coronation clothing called vestments have only been seen on telly in black and white, which would look like they haven't been worn in a long time because we've had the color TV for at least 10, 20 years, haven't we? Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, but hell, she was the queen for 70 freaking years, so that's why they haven't been seen. Um, So they show pictures of them. Uh, in an homage to Michael Jackson, he'll be wearing one coronation glove. It's white on his right hand. 
that it is not an homage to Michael Jackson. However, <laughs> the picture below it shows Michael with a white glove. He looks nothing like King Charles. <laughs> Uh, and it shows the vestments and their robes and their grand and their groovy. They probably smell a little bit musty, but what are you going to do? Um, he will pull on the incredible super tunica, a sleeve coat of gold silk, which weighs, which weighs around two kilograms. What is that in American weight? Not much. Okay. It was created for his great-grandfather, George V, 1911, and worn by... Uh, by George the Sixth and other people that were royal and more stuff like that. A golden coach being used was on display. So I haven't seen nor have I looked for how American TV plans to cover this. Have you all? Uh-uh. It is this weekend, I right? About it. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, three days of peace, love, and music. I'd rather be <laughs> down in Tomway Park. Fuck <laughs> this guy. Shoot, I, yeah. I, you know, too, I mean, the queen, too, I mean, she made some mistakes, but in that position for, you know, 70 years, how are you not going to have some rough moments with your family and uh, all that stuff? But uh, if they treat Harry, you know, badly, and they will, um, that's going to be a really bad look. But anyway, it, it just isn't the same. Uh, the Queen did not RSVP to the gig, so I guess she's not going out of spite. <laughs> yeah, probably but, not. Uh, it, it's, I don't know. It, it just, in this day and time, seems excessive, but it is a royal tradition. And, yeah. And the, and, and, and the British and their allies and all of their peoples will be fired up, I suppose. I don't know. I, I'd rather watch the uh, Derby and uh, some baseball, and I don't know what else. You, know, you got to watch um, this HBO thing. I'm going to get to this. There's so much new TV on, um, on, 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 on everything, and the writer's strike did come to pass. Yep. So if you live for late night TV and for Colbert and Fallon and Seth, you're out of luck. Um, uh, they're going to be uh, in reruns. This last strike was for a hundred days, so there will be no late night TV. No soap operas in the daytime until they get this fixed, and it may take a while because they're way, way far apart on their on the items of which they are um, arguing. So that's going to happen. Uh, how will it affect other TV? There's so much that just came out this past month. The uh, David Bowie thing on HBO is on the top of my list. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was raving about. A show called, um, and my mind just exploded, The Diplomat on Netflix. It's supposed to be mm. remarkable. Uh, Ted Lasso, I think it's uh, show number six. The first four shows were a little shaky, but the last two have been just remarkable. Uh, that's good. Uh, Succession is in its sixth episode of its last season. Uh, Barry on HBO. They've done four of those so far. There's a new one every Sunday. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. What, yeah. a, what an incredible show. I think it's their best season so far, Wes. I, I, I don't, it's so good. I, I have nothing to complain about at all. It's that really just going great. excellent. It's just, a, it's just so, um, so gorgeous to watch um, with the, just the way that, that, it, that it's shot. 
But again, it's like a Broadway play on television. It's just just oh. wonderful. I wonder why Trees didn't. I wonder what Trees didn't like about it because she texted she was disappointed in the last season of it. Well, season there's only four. been four seasons. No, season five. Well, no, we're on season five now, but season yeah. four was the last season. That's the one I guess yeah. Trees didn't like so much. I don't it know which one great, she means. But hmm. this one gets your attention right away. It's a very uh, kind of a nuanced show. Um, there are so many components to it too, but it's it's really good, and um, so there are so many things to watch, and there's baseball constantly, so you have things to watch. Let, let's um, uh, head to the end of this hour. Um, we need to give away these tickets, right? Yes. For the Beale Street Music Festival. Okay, I have prepared nothing. Because uh, that, that's just <laughs> how I rolls. Um, let me think. Let me think. Go ahead. I don't want to make this overly simple. These tickets are expensive. Everyone knows it. And if you don't want to go, then don't bother to get in line or to text anything. Um, give me a second here. I'm going to do this on my terms. Okay. Well, uh, let's see here. We Memphis. can indulge you in that. Uh, it's no trouble. And we're going to also tell you of the passing of a man that uh, wrote some really, really great songs. First one was a hit in 1970. And he was playing. I can't type too good today. <laughs> well, you're typing and talking at the same time. Maybe so if I had some more tabs open, I could. See? I know. Yep. Don't start <laughs> Problems. with me, now you're, now, now in the, later in the day, you're going to be like, gosh, dang it, she's right. <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> you what? Uh, all right, wait a minute. Okay. Uh okay. let's see. I'm seeing. Um I'm 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 just thinking here for just a minute. I can um, tell you. I, I can hear the steam coming out of the ears. Uh, <laughs> um Okay, I'm gonna do this. Uh let's see here. I guess I could have prepared, but Adventures in Typing. Right. I can type good though. I took typing in eighth grade summer school as punishment. Really? And it served punishment. you well. We had to take typing. My mother taught typing when I was in high school, not at my school, but she taught typing in the eighties. I I blew off some class, some bullshit like algebra. And I flunked <laughs> that. So I had to go to to eighth grade typing for two hours a day and get into that. But who knew down the road that, it, that that this keyboard would be a part of your life every <laughs> exactly. day? Exactly. The, the return on that investment has been huge. All right. Here's where we're going. Okay. Um, now, this gives people a chance to cheat because it's impossible to do anything that you can't look up. But the first... What do we have? Let's we have say three, the first... Yeah, we have three. We have... Oh, Let's say ahead. two pair. Okay, we're gonna, we're going to do two pair of passes for every day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You and a friend can go downtown and feel safe. There will be enough police there to. Uh, don't be afraid. It will be fun. You got to park first and get your head right, and then no coolers, no dogs, the usual stuff. Don't be a mm -hmm. dick and and don't mess up the park. They got that thing all, you know, prettied up. But um, this should be Who quite the adventure. Huh? 
poop where you're supposed to at in home. the porta yeah, potty. Yeah, yeah. Don't just squat. Yeah, at home. You know. Yeah, at I, home. I mean, when, yeah. All right. I'm gonna ask this quickly. The Roots, one of the best bands out there. They're the house band on the Fallon Show. Quest Love is their leader. He is an incredible player. Everyone loves this guy. He's an activist. He's an artist. What is his real name? Eight seven eight nine four two zero. His name is not Quest Love. What's his real <laughs> name? And the first two of you clowns that get this. Um, now, if you don't want to go, then don't waste everybody's time. Right. And and take tickets that somebody else would really like to have. What is Quest Love's real name? All right. Gordon Lightfoot made really, really nice music. And he died yesterday or, what, um, or Monday, ago. whatever. Mm -hmm. He was 84 years old. And he was on tour earlier this year. And he had to cancel his concerts on April 11th due to health issues. And a month or less after that, he has passed on to wherever we go. And this guy, um, I never really liked the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald because he oh, did better it. songs. Uh, well, then you'll, then you go play it for yourself later. <laughs> um, this song was the first hit. If you could read my mind was a beautiful song, 1970. And then let's play, we have Sundown Wesley. Yep. And, and which other one do we have? We have uh, Carefree Highway and The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Play the first three. Okay. And we'll, <laughs> Damn it. And, They're um, all great. The, yeah, they are. It, th that song is, is a true song based upon... The Hell, wreck of yeah, what he said. Play all four of them. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he he yeah. was reading an article in uh, 1975 about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and wrote the song from that. So he made money off of somebody else's misfortune. <laughs> I didn't know so many people covered his songs. Oh, good Johnny Lord. Cash, Elvis, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, Judy Collins, Grateful Dead. Oh, Sundown was it? Was it? was a big hit. Well, so was Carefree Highway. All right. Yeah. Um, from Canada, he had a great life and a good career. 84 years old. Here are the four songs made popular by Gordon Lightfoot. After this, you'll be hearing Between the Grooves, a preparation for the Beale Street Music Festival. A number of bands on that show. Everybody from 311 to The Roots. So text that and the what I've already asked once, I'm going to say it again. Yep. And you can enjoy an hour of those songs after we say goodbye to Gordon Lightfoot. This is Drake Digital. <laughs> 